turn to the um, book of 1 Samuel. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we are presently in chapter 8. And so I would encourage you to turn to your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, I realize that that passage is in your handout, but I want to encourage you to be looking at your Bible um, as well as um, maybe what is up on the screen or your handout also, okay? And um, we are going to read for Samuel chapter 8, and Debbie is going to come, and she is going to read for us this morning. Let's stand together as we read the word of the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. Lord, we are amazed at how Israel, your people, continue to relate to you. having been so close to a a history in the book of Judges, that time period in their lives where 
they wander away and they cry out to you because of the oppression they're under and then you deliver them. And Lord, just one chapter ago, they were coming, falling on their knees, repenting. And now we, we see them once again saying no to you. And there's a part of us, Lord, that just says, why? And yet, Lord, in the midst of all this, you want us to see our own sinfulness and how easily we drift and how easily we move from a season of repentance to a season of rebellion. Now, Lord, would you strengthen us today? Would you allow us to be teachable? Would you allow me to be your messenger that is faithfully representing you in, in this message, Lord, that you have for us. And Lord, would your people be strengthened, convicted, and encouraged by you, through your word, and for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, on a discussion uh, on the city, which is our kind of online communication mechanism for our church, one of the questions or themes that came up was this. Does anyone have a resource or recommendation for a good lawyer to help us write a will? Now friends, there are some good questions that people can ask, and that is a very good question. In fact, I was really encouraged by the kind of responses that came to that question because thinking ahead about your family and taking time to consider precautionary measures for the health of your family is a good thing. And no one knows when they're going to die and how they will die and what the circumstances will be of their death and the impact that will have on their family. So it is a good thing to seek out a reputable lawyer to help you with a will and a trust. And, and knowing that there's a plan, especially for the children if you and your spouse should pass away. That kind of idea and that kind of thinking is healthy and it's right. But it can also be very consuming. <laughs> because you're thinking about possibilities. And you're thinking about what might happen if these things were to take place. And I remember when my wife and I were doing our trust and we're going through this and we're having to kind of force ourselves to think through the implications of what we were doing and if these things were true. And there was actually a sadness that you feel just thinking about it. And so this can also be a, 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 an open door to various forms of insecurities that may rise. Now I like to call those kind of struggles the what ifs of life. What if I get cancer and die before my wife? What if my wife dies before I do? What if my children are injured and I have to care for them? What if one of my children dies? What if I die and my wife marries again? What if I die and my wife marries again and she has children? What if I get sick? But it takes forever for me to die. Who will care for me? What if in the end I don't have any money 
how will that affect my wife and my children and my grandchildren? And we could go on down that list of what ifs, right? Because they're all possibilities. And we can get so consumed with the what ifs of life. And friends, that is the reality of where we find the Israelites in 1 Samuel 8. There is great uncertainty about the future of Israel. Now the people loved and appreciated Samuel. He had been faithful to judge them with God's word for years. And he's proven his trustworthiness. But things are changing there is a huge security concern. A huge security concern in the hearts of the people of Israel. Now why is there this this security concern? Let's let's just kind of see what the writer says. First of all, there's a concern over Samuel's age. Here's the guy who has been the judge of Israel for over 20 years and longer. And they've gotten used to him being around. They've gotten used to his leadership. They've gotten used to him being the one proclaiming the word of the Lord to the people of God. But he's getting old. And what's going to happen when he dies? How much will things change? And of course, the the, the passage here goes on. It says, when Samuel became old, and here's the second concern, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. So there's this concern over Samuel's appointment of his sons as judges. Now, if you are a, a priest, um there was a, you might want to say, a hereditary succession that was true in the priesthood. But you don't find that in the judges of Israel. God raises up a judge. He's the judge. It doesn't like pass down to his children. So what's going on here? And I think if we're to think kindly about Samuel, because it seems at this stage that, that there's nothing negative that's really said about Samuel. It's just all positive. So if you think kindly about Samuel in his old age and the wisdom of his appointment, we can see that probably what he was doing was seeking to be practical. And here's why. Because it tells us that his sons judged in Beersheba, which is in the southern part of Israel. And he was in Ramah, which would have been more central northern part of Israel. And you think about the fact that he's old, what does that tell you? I don't have to travel down south as much as I used to. Because you remember, what was Samuel doing? He was a circuit riding judge. But when you get old, your circuit riding ability diminishes. And your children are getting older, and he's probably thinking, you know, this is, this is what can happen. And I think that my sons who've grown up in my presence and in, you know, where I've been ministering, can carry this on. So at least we can think kindly about that, but that is of concern. The third thing is this, there's concern then over the direction of the leadership of Israel because his sons, we're told, did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And of course, when you read that, 
your mind flashes back to what? Eli and his sons. Now, if you pointed a finger, which was easy to do, at Eli because of his passivity as a parent, you may come to the conclusion that his son's behavior was the result of his passivity. But scripture doesn't tell us that. It just tells us that in the moment of their, or in the context of their disobedience and their immorality and their abuse of the priesthood as adults, that he responded in a very passive way. So we need to be careful here. But here we have Samuel, who judged Israel faithfully all the days of his life. But even when serving God faithfully, there is no guarantee that your children will turn out to be faithful to follow the Lord. Now, there's a lesson for us there. God greatly uses Samuel, and God is greatly using Samuel. And why God, while God is greatly using Samuel, guess what? His sons that he's hoping will impact Israel choose not to walk in his way. In other words, walk in the example, walk in a similar fashion, honoring God, following God, proclaiming the truth of God. No, they went a different direction. Now, there are certainly principles that we can apply here as parents. Let me just throw out some things for us to consider. All right, train your children in the ways of the Lord. Isn't that what we're called to do? Of course. Bring them to church in a way that encourages them to follow the Lord. I remember when I was, when I was younger, I was an unbeliever. This is when I was growing up in England, and I was, uh, um, let's just put it this way, um, I was a sight to behold. Um, that was during the old punk era, and, um, and yet my parents didn't drag me to church in the sense of, you know, literally pulling me, but they stood firm and they said, you're coming, and there were times when I wouldn't because I would escape, and I would run someplace, and they would say, okay, we're going to go to church and leave you here, but many times I would go, but it wasn't so much that my rebellion was against my parents as it was, I just didn't want to be in the context of church because I was struggling with that, okay? So bring them to church in a way that encourages them to follow the Lord. Spend time with them in God's word. In other words, don't brush aside their questions and doubts. Do you have questions and doubts? Do you like to talk to people when you have questions and doubts? Of course. And so as parents, we need to actually welcome those to be able to talk through those things. All right, pray with them, for them, and model prayer in your own life. Admit when you're wrong and when you have sinned and be quick to ask forgiveness. Be careful that when it comes down to it, all you're looking for is conformity to Christianity rather than a genuine gospel encounter with Christ. And I think that last one is probably the rub. As parents, we want to kind of say, oh, it's time to go to church. Let's make sure all the kids look clean and they look godly, whatever that is, Right? You know, and so they, they have that appearance and we're walking in and say, yeah, you know, you know, we're a godly family. 
Well, the reality is, you know, the kids were ki kicking and screaming before you were getting them dressed and all that kind of stuff, and you may have whipped them into shape before you actually entered the doors. And you, you see what I'm saying? You, there's, there's this mentality that we have when it's just saying, all I want is for my child to conform. Now, there is a need to conform. There's a need to say, hey, we're in God's house. There's a certain way to behave. There's a certain way to act. But at the same time, we must be careful that we're not just looking for right behavior. We want to see a heart that is turning and hearing the God of the universe. And so friends, it should be a lesson to us as a church that good parents can have children who rebel, who struggle with their sin and need the church's help. And sadly, much of the church historically has not responded by helping. They've responded by scorning. Okay, and I just want to—I want to caution us as a, as a church family here. There are parents, and there will be parents who are trying to do things right and well, and their children are not responding as they would wish. What they need is your encouragement, your support, your understanding. And if the parents are not standing for God, then what what they should be doing is coming alongside, saying, "Listen." Here's how you need to speak for God in this context. Right? So, so parenting can be a very, very difficult thing. And just because you're honoring God in your life as a parent doesn't guarantee that your children are going to turn out following your ways. Now, the security concern specifically that these Israelite people have as they go to their elders is a security concern of leadership, and their security concern is legitimate. Samuel is getting old. His sons now seemingly are the next generation of judges, but they have wandered away from God. They have slipped into selfish practices that dishonor God, and what does the future hold? So there is this genuine legitimate security concern. And we can all feel that kind of change taking place all around us, can't we? Our society is, is falling down the slippery slope of morality that is found in Romans 1, 18 through 32, where immorality, lewdness, homosexuality and, have, have become the new norm to be accepted and even considered to be right. In the sense that if you say anything against those things, you're the one with the problem. You're the one that's being judgmental. So chaste, honest living before God is considered offensive and intolerant. Now, we, listen, we see that in the gay agenda today, where ungodly leadership is forcing sexual immorality in all its forms, including homosexuality, on our children. And if such activity is, is normal and, and morally acceptable, that's, that's what's now being pumped through our schools. It's what's being pumped through the airways. And we're just supposed to deal with it. We also see that the writing that is going on, thinking of Ferguson and other places now it's popping up, right, is exploiting the rightness of justice and ignoring the facts about the sinfulness of a particular young man. You know, it just, it, it's incredible to me 
and we've had some things happen here in the Bay Area, that people think that if a police officer approaches you and you choose not to listen and not to obey, that things are going to go well for you. Why, why is it that we cannot think that an individual who is behaving badly is not responsible for his actions that lead to further altercations? We don't want to talk about that. But you see, God does talk about that. It's called sin. It's called what happens in the heart. It's not just your behavior that matters. It's the heart attitude that matters here. And so this is, this is part of the decline. This is part of the struggle. This is part of what you want to say as you're looking around the world that you're living in. There are some things that are of great concern. And you might be tempted to say this. What kind of world have I brought my children into? Have you ever thought that as parents? What kind of world am I living in that is allowing these things? What kind of country can it be that is no longer or so eager, I should say, to turn man's sinfulness into a right. And what future do we have if this goes on? I'm sure that as you've sat in your own quiet place, you've thought things like this. What's it gonna be like 10 years from now? It certainly is considerably different than it was five years ago. And how quickly it's changed. But here's the reality. Life is full of insecurities. Is it not? And let me just list off some. When the pink slips are being handed out at work, when your children start down a rebellious path and you seem to be losing your parenting grip, when the doctor looks at you with honest resignation and gives you the truth about your diagnosis, when you and your spouse share hurtful words and in the heat of the moment things are said like I hate you or I wish I never married you or I think we need to get a divorce. When you are arrested for a crime you committed before you became a follower of Christ. When the IRS send you a letter in the mail telling that you have been, <laughs> you have won, right? You've been picked for an audit. When your friend whom you shared intimate information with betrays you by using that information and they plot against you. When your parents start to decline in their old age, when your healthy financial portfolio is reduced by 50%, when you come home to find it looted and your computer and jewelry and other valuables have been stolen, when the political party that you are opposed to because it stands for so many attitudes and behaviors that you believe will impact your future when it gains powerful control. Now friends, these, these are all examples that I'm pulling from just my interaction with people throughout the years that are circumstances that leave us in a place of insecurity. To the question the rest of the passage seeks to reveal is this. What will we choose to do when our future looks shaky? What will we do when we are feeling insecure? How will we respond when we are feeling anxious? How are we tempted to think and behave when we're consumed with worry? I've been in a church context where I've known some people who say, you know, they, they suffer from anxiety, they suffer from um, I want to say fill in the blank, but primarily anxiety. And, and I say, well, have you considered what God's word says? Oh, yes, I've memorized those passages, but they don't work. 
What we have before us, friends, is a picture, an understanding of insecurity, which can be called worry, can be called anxiety, can be called a number of different things, fear, uncertainty. And it, it's screaming at us about how we respond to those feelings because we all have them at various times. That's the question for us this morning. But there's also a structure to this, this text that we want to just highlight here quickly, okay? Because it kind of is divided into two parts as we move ahead, although we're going to look at it a little differently. But I want you at least to see in the text the kind of structure that's going on. First of all, in verses 2 through 18, here's the, here's the pattern. There is the people speak to Samuel, Samuel speaks to God, God speaks to Samuel, Samuel speaks to the people, right? You get the picture there. And then again, in verse 19 through the end, guess what we have? The people speak to Samuel, Samuel speaks to God, God speaks to Samuel, Samuel to the people again. So we have this account for us in this interaction, and what are they asking for? Well, fine, they're asking for a king. Now, with that in mind, let's continue on to what I'm calling, we had a security concern. Now, there's a security plan. There's a security plan. And what is a security plan? A security plan is a strategy for making sure that there are no security breaches that can hinder growth or that will allow further deterioration to take place. And so the the people of Israel are looking at the the, the reality and the, the genuine concern about what is happening in their country's leadership with these two sons in particular and, and they're saying, we got to come up with a plan here. we got to figure something out. And what do they come up with? Verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. What is it that they actually want? They want a new form of government, a new kind of government. We want a king. We want a king just like the other nations around us. Now, before we jump too quickly to condemn the people of Israel for their thinking, we must be honest with the text of Scripture. Because it was not necessarily wrong for the people of Israel to ask for a king. It was permissible because of what God had said to Israel in Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17. This is really, really important to, to get a framework for what is happening here and why there actually is a problem with what they're saying. All right, so there isn't so much an issue or a problem with them asking for a king because Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and following gives us these truths. When you come to the land that your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Boy, does that sound familiar? You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You uh, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only 
he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Just, just stop there for a second. So if you're, you're coming into the kingship, you better have some good handwriting because part of your responsibility as king is to sit down each time, each fresh time a king comes in and to write out the law of God talking about here what's written in the book of Deuteronomy. Why would that be the case? So that the king would know what God requires. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in the book of a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his, ch his children in Israel. So let me ask you a question. Does God permit the request for a king based on this passage? Yes, it's there, okay? But the point here is that the request for a king that they were giving was sinful because it wasn't a request for God's king, it was a request for their king. In other words, a king like all the other nations. In other words, we're not saying, you know, ask God if he can provide for us a king that he wants to have over us, but we wanna have a king, we wanna raise up a king like all the other countries have a king. In other words, they wanted to choose their king based on their standards, not God's. So in that sense, they were rejecting God as their king. And that moves us then from the people's plan to the Lord's plan, and we kind of pick that up in, in Deuteronomy, but now back in 1 Samuel, verse seven. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. And that's, that's really helpful for a leader to hear. It's really helpful for the one who is proclaiming God's word to hear God saying, listen, say what I'm saying, but know that when they respond to you, that they're not really responding to you, they're responding to me. And I flash forward, New Testament, God raises up pastors and says, preach the word, that if we are preaching the word and people reject that, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus, right? And didn't Jesus say that to his disciples? They don't really hate you. They hate me. That's what we have going on here, okay? Now we're gonna cheat a little bit. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. And let's just see a little bit of the commentary that Samuel gives in his farewell speech. Samuel is reviewing how the God of Israel has been Israel's deliverer in their times of distress. And so he's just reminding them, here as he 
as he's saying goodbye about God's faithfulness to them to be their deliverer. In verse eight, we find here Israel was in Egypt in slavery and they cried out to God and God sent Moses and Aaron as deliverers. That's just kind of real, a real nutshell. This is what happened in, in, uh, in Egypt, right? And then you, you jump down verses nine through 11, tell us a little bit about what happened in the book of Judges. Israel forgets God. They're subjected to various oppressors in the time of the Judges. Israel cries out to God, confessing sin and pleading for deliverance. And then I think it's in verse 11, we find that God sends Jerubbabel and Barak, and Jephthah and Samuel to deliver them. Right, so there's a scenes that God is a God who delivers his people. He is faithful to deliver his people. He is one that's always been there to deliver his people. Now jump down. Israel now in verse 12 is confronted by Nahash the Amorite who is flexing his military might. And it says in verse 12, and when you saw that Nahash the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And what Samuel is driving at is that they got to a place where they were rejecting God as their king, saying, no, we must have a king like the nations around us. Rather than turn to our king, God, Yahweh, we're gonna turn to a substitute king. And in their case, that substitute was a new form of government. Now hear this, it's not the monarchy that is the root problem, but it is the putting of trust in a monarchy that is the real problem. That's a really important distinction as we continue on and, and try and tease out the applications for us. Now this, this application kind of comes at us in this way. There, there will be times when we're feeling insecure. Like I said, call it anxiety. Um, you could call it worrying about what might happen in the future or what might happen in some kind of a circumstance, we have a natural tendency in those times to look around for what we think is the best solution. And we have a tendency to look to substitutes to lean on. We go online, we read reports, we consult the expert, we ask our friends, we listen to our feelings, but too often we don't turn to what God desires or to what God desires for us that is revealed in his word. You know, my interaction with that, that particular person that says, you know, I, 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 I've been diagnosed with you know, anxiety disorder and you know, I've read those passages of scripture and my, 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 my counsel to that individual is, don't just memorize those passages of scripture, you gotta dig into the word and you gotta see who God is and understand how he is God in your life. You gotta take things deeper, you gotta believe who he is and really understand his character so that you can rest on that. But too often we don't turn to the word of God as our source of help. And of course when we turn to the word of God we're actually turning to God because God has revealed himself in the pages of his word to reveal his heart and his desires for us. Now there's some parallels and contrasts that that are worth at least noticing here, okay? God is teaching us through these stories about our tendency to drift away from him. And so, uh, as, we, as we look at chapter eight, where the people are demanding a king, it is a complete contrast to chapter seven, when they lean on God in their repentance and God delivers them. In other words, is it, is it hard for them to stand with an army of 
Philistines saying, we're going to come and we're going to rout you again? And they, yeah. And what do they do then? Samuel gets up and says, you know what? If you're going to follow God, this is what you have to do. And he lays out what repentance looks like. And they do it. And God delivers them. And now the issue is there are two sons that are not walking in the ways of Samuel. They're not honoring God. Oh, panic, 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 panic. But this time, rather than trust God, what do they do? They turn to substitutes. They turn to something else to lean on. Interesting contrast, isn't it? How quickly, how quickly they abandon God for a substitute. For not even a, a substitute that is in the context of their framework. It's a substitute that is outside of their framework, like all the other nations. So they're no longer leaning and repenting. They're looking around and saying, we want that. There's also a parallel between chapter 8 and chapter 4. In chapter 4, Israel turned to the substitute of superstition. They brought the ark among them, and they trusted that the ark would deliver them. Of course, did it? No. But now in chapter 8, Israel turns not to an ark, because that doesn't work anymore, because remember, it's somewhere else right now. It's not with them. And instead of turning to the, the ark or to God, they turn to politics. They want a king. And so they're saying, it's the king that is going to take care of us. It's the king that we can put our trust in. See, so this is not so much about the monarchy as it is a heart of saying, this is where my hope is found. This is where my trust is going to be. This is what I think is going to be the answer for our crisis. It's not God. It's a king. And this can only be solved by raising up a king like the nations around us. Now, how is it with us? Have we sought similar substitutes in our lives? Are we crying out to God in our hearts saying things like this, God, give us a president that loves this country so that in 2016 we can turn our country back to you. Or maybe we're saying, Lord, keep my financial portfolio and my real estate value growing so that when I retire I'll have enough to live on. And of course, in, in that thinking, you're thinking about all the people that sold their properties in 2007, and seven, uh, yeah, 2007 and just made a lot of money and went and bought someplace out in Idaho somewhere that's like a big mansion, right? That's what I want, God, but that's security. Or, or it's possible that in our distress, we've, we've bought into the popular line that says, Lord, you promised that you want us to be healed so I'm going to claim that promise knowing that you will keep your promises. And of course, the premise of that statement is faulty because God's healing ultimately is a spiritual healing. It's not a guarantee of always physical healing. He sometimes does heal. We are to pray for that healing, but it doesn't guarantee that we will be healed because God is greater in his understanding and purposes than even our desires through that suffering. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. There's nothing wrong with praying for a future president. There's nothing wrong with, with asking God to watch over your portfolio. There's nothing wrong with, 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 um, with going to God and asking him to heal you if it be his will. The problem comes when rather than trusting God, we tend to lean on these focal points that end up being substitutes for God. What our nation needs is not a new president. Our nation needs God. Now, it doesn't matter what party you're a part of here. Man's problem is sin. 
And this nation is suffering because people will not listen to God speak to their sinful condition and the message of the gospel that reconciles them to himself. A president that is good in your thinking may do the job of somehow moving things a little bit this way, but it will not radically change this country. But what are we leaning on? And the day before an election, a national election, what are we leaning on? Who are we leaning on? Our candidate or the creator? So the problem comes when we lean on these focal points rather than being, um, rather than leaning on God himself. And so this country will get a president that it deserves, but here this, God will still be sitting on his throne. <laughs> Your portfolio may crumble into monopoly money, but God will still be the one who showers his children with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Your health may deteriorate, but God is still keeping his eye on his sparrows. Now, how many of you remember Y2K? Some of, some of us older folk, okay, remember what it was like just maybe, you know, the, the year before, the weeks before Y2K. And listen, there, there was a, if you went around or you weren't old enough to remember, there was kind of this, this panic buzz going on, right? I mean, it was, it was really, really an interesting time in the history of our country, actually in the history of the world. Some of the things that we were panicked about or concerned about is, would my money still be in the bank when I got up the next morning, January 1st? Would there be any food available? Would the economic infrastructure implode? Would we still have power? That was more of an issue in the Midwest, right? Understand than here. Because at least here you'd be warm, likely, right? Um, in Michigan, maybe not so. We always had wood. Would there be any gasoline available to drive our cars? Our home in Michigan um, was, well, it was like a little behind a McDonald's, which sometimes was good, sometimes not good. Um, always had this desire for french fries for some reason, but next to the McDonald's was a gas station. And I remember the day before Y2K hit. It was almost like you, you could sense there was, there was kind of a, people were just like, oh. and then all of a sudden, boom, there were lines of cars at the gas stations. People saying, we just gotta get gas, we gotta get gas, we gotta get gas. And they were willing to wait two hours just to put gas in their tank. And there were some altercations that took place too, and those were on the news, and it was an interesting time for us. Now, if you're old enough to remember that, you're also old enough to remember, even if you didn't buy into all of that stuff, you remember the feelings that you were feeling that were entering your heart with so much news about this panic, right? I mean, because what, what does the news want to do? They just want to squeeze it for all it's worth, right? So it's just they're hitting you all over the place. Like, hey, listen, I'm not buying into this, but man it does kind of cause me to wonder, right? You have these little panic moments, so to speak, right? So it's easy to get sucked into all of it, but at the end of the day, not much was different when we woke up in the morning. My computer still worked. I don't know about yours. My, my, my alarm clock went from, you know, they were talking about, you know, there's not enough numbers on the, all that kind of stuff that was going on. It's like, oh, you know, what's gonna happen? All right, money was still in the bank, um, except for what I paid for gas when I was in that line. Um, and people were up and about 
just like they usually were. And I remember thinking to myself, even though I didn't get sucked into the panic, I mean the ultra panic, I was affected by the residual effect of panic all around me. And it was draining. Anxiety, worry, insecurity, when you turn to a substitute, is draining. Especially when that substitute is empty of ability to bring any lasting satisfaction. And when it comes down to it, turning to a substitute rather than God is far more draining to your spirit than turning to him in your time of insecurity. Sometimes we think that doing business with God will be so draining that we just don't have the energy for it, and so we, we turn to ice cream, we turn to whatever it might be, thinking that will be it, but friends, you're still wrestling in your heart, and you will be drained of that, I want to say, energy to do the things that you need to. So God now continues to respond to Samuel and says, verse nine, now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now what's interesting in this passage is how many times God says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. (laughs) Now, it's not that God is saying they shouldn't obey my voice, but God is responding to their stubbornness. So there's been security concern that's led to a substitute security plan. So God now gives them what I'm calling a security warning. A security warning. And let's, let's just ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose of a warning? Typically a warning is put there to provide safety, to um, alert you to danger, um, you know, you come to the end of a cliff and there's this big barrier and it's yellow and black and it may have written on it, warning, cliff, you know? And I'll just say, well, that's some really good information I need, yeah, you know? No, you're like, okay, I need that. That helps me to say what? Put your foot on the brake. Don't go forward anymore. It's there for your care, for your protection, okay? So when we, when we pick up here at verse 10, we need to think that God is, is giving this warning out of kindness, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Remember a couple of verses before that, God says, but you will have to warn them. Well, here's the warning. And and we need to note here that this, this expression, he will take, is used six times. And then he also uses the word appoint a couple of times here. And I find seven things that he says that he's gonna do here, okay? He will take, and I'll list them up there for you. He will take your sons. If you're gonna put all your eggs in this monarchy, if that's what you're gonna lean on, if that's what you're gonna trust as your substitute, then just understand what's gonna happen if this king is ruling over you. Your sons that you're counting on to help work on the farm or in the the trade or to carry on the family business, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. In other words, they'll be soldiers. 
He will take your leaders, verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow this, his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. In other words, he's taking those people that are part of the leadership and the workforce, not to work for the people, but to work for the king. He'll take your daughters, so don't, don't think that your daughters will be able to stay at home with you and cook for you and care for you and help you raise your family. No, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And you may be used to setting aside the best of your crops for special family feasts and celebrations, but he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. All right, having a king is costly. That's why he'll take your resources or He will tax you, right? He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your workers. The workers that you are relying on right now to help till the ground and and care for the fields and and work in your vineyards or uh, help you with, with the jobs that you are trying to accomplish, the king will take them to work in his fields. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks. He'll take your livestock. Now what God is saying here to the Israelite people is this. If you, if you choose a king, and it will be a king, not that I've chosen, but a king that you have chosen, this is what will take place. There will be, first of all, a new system of government. What Israel was crying out for was a complete overhaul of their present system, moving from a delivery system. In other words, God provides a deliverer, okay, when Israel cries out, to a dynastic system where the king would reign and his sons and his sons after him. So there's a new system of government. Secondly, there's a centralization of power. The king would do what he wanted, when he wanted, and would have the military power to back up his decisions. The third thing is, in in, in wanting a king, there would also be a privileged class. The king and his family, the friends of the king, often called the king's court, be merchants, and then there are peasants. So the, the monarch would mostly be concerned with whom? His friends and family. So this is a whole radical change that will come if you continue down this path. You want a king, and you don't want to listen to me? You want to reject me as king, reject my plan even to bring you a king? This is what it's going to be like. And he, understand this, um, what, what he's calling for here is not some kind of um, system that is going to be abusive, but this is just the normal reality of what it is like to have a monarchy. He says then, as we continue on, end of verse verse 17, and you will be his slaves. In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Oh. <laughs> Here's the warning. I mean, the, 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 the picture is bad enough, but the, 
and the Lord will not answer you in that day is devastating, is it not? So what they're asking for in panicking over security and turning uh, to be like the nations around them will be the means of their oppression. But this time their oppression will not come at the hands of enemies, but at the hand of a king that they have chosen to rule over them. I mean, you see the complete overhaul it's no longer the enemies that are the issue. The issue right now is that you want this king. Do you understand what you're asking for? And it moves us into this last section that I'm calling a security fail. Now let's think this through in the context of 1 Samuel. In chapter 3, verse 19, we're told... And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel was the kind of prophet that improved himself to be trustworthy, to be a source of wisdom and counsel from God, a voice that should be listened to. But now in 8, verses 19 through 20, this is what we find. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no! But there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Just like the ark, we're gonna trust in the king. Now, friends, there is, there is a reality to that scenario. You think of, you study some of the battles throughout history, in particular, you know, the, you know England and France and all those times of chivalry, if the king went down, what happened to the army? I mean, they would actually think, you know, this was part of God's judgment and things like that. So they always protected the king, but the king went into battle. So there's some reality here that, you, you know, in, in, in context, in, in, in uh, nations around, that's how people viewed things, but in doing that, it's just like taking the ark into battle, you're taking now the king into battle, and you're saying, the king's gonna do it for us. What has that been the case? It's always God that is the one who provides the victory for Israel, is it not? And the moment we begin to claim credit for what God has done is the moment we are undermining our understanding of who God is. What we have here is utter stubbornness. A, a mule-headedness that is so set in getting its desire that it cannot allow itself to see the danger of the warning of a loving and caring God. It just wants what it wants and is willing to get what it wants no matter what. And what is so sad is that Israel will suffer with the no matter what's. This is a sad and a very common picture among those who live their lives in a sin-cursed world. We learn to love our substitutes when we are insecure, and in the face of warning, we still choose to pursue our flesh. Faithful parents struggling with a rebellious child can stand for God and lovingly speak warnings 
only for that child to say, I don't care, this is what I want, and I'm going to, do, I'm going to go through with it. Loving, godly friends can plead with Scripture before one who is a friend who's willing to give up on their marriage only to hear them say, it's too hard, there's been too much pain, I know what God says, but I'm tired, and I just want relief. It's a choice of something other than God that is a substitute. When you refuse to obey the voice of God, there are three things that we find in this passage that will be taking place. You are rejecting God. That's from verse seven. They have rejected me from being king over them. When you refuse to hear the voice of God, you are saying, God, I reject you. Secondly, you are rebelling against his warning. I mean, just, it's stunning, isn't it, how they respond here after this warning. I mean, just, here he is laying out, this is what it's going to be like for you to have a king. Do you understand? No! We will have a king to rule us like the nations. He'll go out into battle, and he will lead us. So you don't care what God says. You don't care what God is doing in counseling you, in warning you with his truth. Wow. We will not obey. We will have what we want. We don't want God's kind of king. We want our kind of king. And we want to slap a label on it that says, this is God's will. And that's often how it happens. But the sad reality is this. You'll often get exactly what you're asking for. And when Samuel heard all the, the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Is this God being passive? Is this God saying, Oh, I guess so. This is God giving them over to their sinful desires in his rejection of him and his re their rebellion of his counsel. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Now be careful that you demand what you want or God might actually give it to you. We're so easily led to substitutes. We're so easily consumed with those substitutes, whether it's money, whether it's relationships, um, whether it's some kind of a, a prestige and a job work. You know, I've, I've got to move up. I've got to get the next job. I've got to step up there. God might actually give that to you, especially if you're pursuing it sinfully. Because then you'll have to live with the results of it. And living with the results of it will be in and of itself, its own consequence for your stubbornness and rebellion. Israel is really fleshing out what we will see later in Romans chapter one, where we see God three times 
giving the people over to their sinfulness. Israel's heard God's wisdom, but they refuse to listen to it. They've heard the truth, but they don't love the truth. They can repeat God's truth, but they are not willing to follow it. How about you? I would hope that if you are a regular attender of of Gateway, that you would say, I'm in a place where I hear God's truth. And that's good. But we want you to love it. We want you to follow it. We want that truth to permeate your spiritual being and have its way in you. Not just say, well, yeah, I have a good knowledge about this, that, and the other. No, it needs to be applied practically in your life for the glory of God. They didn't want that. They heard it. They refused to listen to it. And so we must ask ourselves some important questions here. When we hear God's wisdom, are we willing to submit to it? When God gives us instruction Do we have a teachable spirit? When his will is on display through the word preached or read, are we eager to follow it? Now hear this. When our what ifs turn into we must have, we are in great danger. And the place to stop this is not at the we must have. The place to get in here is to understand how we wrestle with the what ifs. And what we have here is a genuine concern for the security of Israel. But rather than turning to God, who has proved himself over and over and over again, they're consumed by being like the world around them and listening to its counsel, listening to its advice, listening to its its wisdom. Oh, you have a king that's over you. That looks good. We need to do what you're doing rather than listening to God and humbling ourselves before him. So Israel had abandoned God and in their insecurity had embraced a substitute, a new political system. When we abandon God in our insecurity and chase after our own substitutes, we do the very same thing. Ultimately, it isn't the substitute that is the issue, but our heart that is no longer trusting in God. That's why I said, you know what? When it comes time for our next presidential election, what do I want you to do? Be a citizen of this country, do your duty, and vote your conscience. But don't panic. (laughs) Trust God. And it may be the person that you want. It may not be the person you want. It may have effects on your life, but God still sits on his throne. And he still calls you to live in whatever context that is for his glory. Better context, worse context. I can tell you this, it's still gonna be darkness. Ultimately, it isn't the substitute that is the issue, but it's our hearts. We wander away because God just doesn't seem big enough enough for us anymore. Because following Christ doesn't seem sophisticated enough. Because 
We think that we must have something tangible to touch, see, hear, to give us comfort. Again, that's why people turn to things like food, ice cream. You know, it's like, it seems, seems silly, doesn't it? But I can feel it, I can touch it. It, 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 it does something physical to me. And, 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 and we're, we're looking for these strokes of comfort that come from turning to substitutes when God is saying, listen, I am stroking you with the gospel every day. Because we have lost our confidence in God. Because we're listening to the voices of the world around us. These are all reasons why we turn to substitutes instead of him. Because we want what the world around us says we need to have. What's the latest thing that Oprah wants you to do? What's the latest thing that you're hearing on the radio that we must get behind? And you know, Unless you're doing these things, you're not complete. You're not being faithful to society, whatever it might be. Listen, it is God that is the ruler of this world. It is God to whom we must give account. Listen to Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And of course, in the book of Proverbs, the wise and the fool are really pictures of the ungodly and the godly, right? A wise person, godly person is gonna listen to advice. What kind of advice? Well, the advice of God, and you might wanna say the advice of someone who is speaking for God, not that that person's words are what you need to take, but you need to listen to them pointing you to the word of God that is directly helpful for your circumstance. The question is, whose advice are you listening to? Your own? Well, I just felt that I needed to, hey, careful with your feelings, right? Your feelings may betray what you really need to do. Well, I just had this, this gut, I, I knew in my gut I had to do this. Well, you might wanna check your gut. Um, because your gut actually may be communicating things to you that are ungodly, that are not wise. Are you listening to society? Here's another area. Are you listening to what I'm calling anemic Christianity that treats God's word superficially? Or ultimately, are you willing to get your advice and listen to God himself? My friends, that takes effort Sometimes that is a little uncomfortable for us, but it's what God calls us to. That's why we, we read this morning, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Friends, I just want to encourage you. I want to plead with you. Because we're all going through times of insecurity. Fight the temptation to lean into a substitute rather than leaning in to God. Now I just want to conclude with two thoughts. Number one, we must see that Jesus is Lord. Let me explain why I'm saying that. The early church understood the Old Testament through the words of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Now in the Septuagint, the Hebrew word Yahweh, 
also known as Jehovah, is translated with the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. So when the early church came up with the rallying cry, Jesus is Lord, they were in actual fact equating their master Jesus Christ with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. In their eyes, the creator of the universe, the covenant-making God of Israel was also Jesus of Nazareth who gave himself as a ransom for many. So with, with, with that in mind, this passage is a call to those who are followers of Christ to nestle into his merciful care as master over them. He takes us as sons and daughters and slaves into a new administration called the church. And in him we have life, abundant life. And that's what it means to be a slave of Christ. We are nestled into his body. But we must also see that Jesus is king. And we're gonna, we're, this theme is gonna come up a lot of times as we go through Samuel because the emphasis of Samuel is pointing to, you know, where is this king? In John 18, Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate asks him the question, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 36 says this. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So did you, did you hear what Jesus is saying? I am not a king like the other nations. Jesus is not your run-of-the-mill king. He is the king that the Godhead chose to sit on the throne of David, to be Israel's and our deliverer. So the gospel of the New Testament is that there is a king worth having, but his kingship is altogether different than the king demanded by the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 8. He's not from this world. The leaders of this world cannot give us security. They cannot give us peace. They cannot give us justice. That could only be found in one king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His name is Jesus. So there's no wonder when Jesus was hanging on the cross Above him was placed a sign providentially by God through Pilate that read this, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's the king we need. He is the king that God has provided for us. And we're gonna celebrate him as we partake of the Lord's table. But let's go to the Lord and pray right now. Lord, I wanna pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I wanna pray for my own heart. It is so easy, Lord, for, for one moment to be convicted of sin and to come before you in repentance. 
And then for not too much time passes by and instead of leaning on you, we're drifting toward substitutes that we think will provide what we need. And yet, Lord, we've borrowed the thinking of the world. We've drifted from you. We've wandered in our heart. And Lord, I, I just ask that we would, be, we would be honest about that reality. That this is a day-to-day struggle for us as God's children. But Lord, through our time this morning, that we would see that our insecurities are opportunities for us to look closely at our heart and to look closely and clearly at you and to be reminded that you are the great God and Savior who has come to deliver us. That the plan of the Godhead was to send Jesus Christ to this earth, God with us in the person of Jesus Christ who would go to a cross, who would hang there and on his shoulders would would take the, the weight and the full brunt of your wrath on our sin. And that being that sacrifice, our sin would be paid once for all. Lord, would you wake us up to our sinful drifting and instill in us a wise, careful, longing to submit ourselves to you as our master, to you as our king, to you as our Lord. Lord, you hung on the cross for us out of your love, out of your grace, out of your kindness. And Lord, now as we celebrate this time of communion, may we reflect, Lord, on what you have done for us in the shedding of your blood and the giving of your body. May it take us back to the basics of our walk with you, that we are sinners called by you to be a part of your family by virtue of what you've done for us on the cross. Would you be glorified, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.